If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. The scripture that Lori has asked me to read this morning, because I might not have chosen this one if left to my own devices for reasons that will probably become obvious as I read it and as Lori preaches about it, is from the Proverbs, the 31st chapter, beginning at verse 10. This is called Ode to a Capable Wife. A capable wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from far away. She rises while it is still night and provides food for her household and tasks for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid for her household when it snows, for all her household are clothed in crimson. She makes herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the city gates, taking his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies the merchant with sashes. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat of the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her happy, her husband too, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the city gates. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us, or particularly Lori, wisdom (laughs) and courage for interpretation. It took six years for this particular proverb to come up in the lectionary on a Sunday when I'm in the pulpit. Six years, 
and it still may be too soon. It's like juggling a hand grenade, this one. My clergy sisters and I, we, we had trouble deciding what to do. Are we obligated to address it because we are women or avoid it for the very same reason? My most progressive of male colleagues won't touch Proverbs 31 with a 10-foot pole. I myself have heard this text preached only a few times, and they were sermons by men on the occasion of Mother's Day, chosen because this is the biblical passage most associated with femininity. It is also the go-to text for complementarians, those who believe there are biblically prescribed separate roles for women and men. Proverbs 31 includes the most cross-stitched Bible verse of all time. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. For some, Proverbs 31 is an important text of inspiration and aspiration, but I've never met a woman who didn't confess that the passage caused more anxiety than encouragement, more stress than affirmation. It can read as just another impossible standard by which to mark the shortcomings of all real women. This woman is working hard everywhere on everything for everybody from dawn to dusk, a housewife on steroids. We are all exhausted on her behalf, but also a little resentful that this still seems to be the measuring stick for women. Sometimes people have a hard time hearing how unhelpful Proverbs 31 can sound, so let me offer these adaptations from the man who has it all. Men, wife playing on the computer and kids in bed, time for some me time with a glossy magazine to find out how to look younger, feel lighter, and camouflage those flaws. Working husband, keep your energy up by snacking on three almonds twice a day. Dad with a career, beat stress by eating raw veggies and adding 50 sit-ups to your bedtime routine. I mean, just imagine what men could achieve if they didn't spend so much time on cleaning, laundry, meal prep, tidying, childcare, holiday planning, school admin, and, and remembering birthdays. Conflict at work, keep concerns to yourself to prove to the women in your office that you don't get testerical. <laughs> testerical. Adjective. Meaning affected by or deriving from wildly uncontrolled emotion comes from the medical Latin word testarius, which describes a male hormonal condition thought to be caused by a dysfunction of the testes. Used in a sentence, Calm down, Brandon, you're getting testerical. <laughs> As a congregation experienced in feminist hermeneutics, I know you are already making a list of the patriarchal, patrilineal, and patrilocal markers in this text, but if you're a first-time guest, don't worry. If you stick around, and we hope that you do, you too will get better at taking the interpretation less traveled. 
And besides, ancient texts like this one doesn't play hide the ball with gender power dynamics. The first red flag goes up immediately. The text seems unable to imagine a capable woman who isn't a married one. And there is the obvious problem of this text being heteronormative. That is, it assumes only male-female marriage covenant. Thank God we're over that. The, pro the poem is an alphabetic acrostic. The first verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the second verse with the second letter, and so on. The point is to sing the woman's praises from A to Z. It was likely composed in the Babylonian exile when, with the collapse of the great national centers of government and religion, the home became the central and social religious institution, the place where Israelite identity was established. It is noteworthy that the poem continues to be recited every Sabbath Eve in traditional Jewish homes, for it is precisely there that Jewish faith finds its bearings. Perhaps Christianity could learn a few things. Proverbs is part of wisdom literature, one of the many categories we use to group the different kinds of writings in the Bible. Wisdom literature includes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. This is the framework for us to dig a little deeper. Proverbs puts much of its teaching about wisdom in the mouth of woman wisdom. You'll remember her from last week's pastoral prayer from Proverbs 1. Wisdom cries out in the street. In the squares, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Throughout Hebrew scripture, woman wisdom is the personification of wisdom. She calls us to walk in her ways and follow her path. It is this image that we seek to keep in our minds this morning. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me a bit as I do a little more teaching than preaching. It'll help if you have the text in front of you, so please grab one of the Bibles in front of you in the pew, and a recovering Baptist will help you find the book of Proverbs. <laughs> we'll even turn the lights up here. There's a table of contents in the front. And if you just open to the middle, that's Psalms, and then Proverbs is the next one over. <laughs> Proverbs 31, verse 10, has been translated in many ways, none of which are as full as the original text. The King James Version asks, who can find a virtuous woman? The NIV says, a wife of noble character, who can find? This morning we read from the NRSV translation, that's what you have in the pews, and the NRSV asks, a capable wife, who can find? Dr. Ellen Davis explains how these translations are problematic for a couple of reasons. First, virtuous, noble, or capable, they, they're all a little colorless for the Hebrew word ha'il, which elsewhere denotes physical strength. Valiant military action, strong moral character, even material wealth. 
Valor better captures the tone of this extravagant poem of praise. Second, the first line is better rendered as a statement rather than a question, since the latter suggests that such a wife is virtually impossible to find. So the, the more accurate reading is this. Whoever can find a wife of valor, her price is beyond jewels. The NRSV has obscured several other phrases in the poem. Verse 11 literally reads, her husband does not lack booty. <clears throat> that particular word, when it is used elsewhere, is one that describes goods acquired through raiding or war. So use of the word here implies that this gain is hard won through the woman's courage and ingenuity. Similarly, the word used for food in verse 15 generally denotes prey hunted down by animals. These words suggest that the woman is engaged in an adventure, pitting her prowess and resourcefulness against difficult odds and succeeding in a remarkable way. Later in the 15th verse, we read that she provides tasks for her servant girls and this is not a to-do list, this, is, this word designates acts of public authority, legal decrees, both divine and human. Moreover, the woman described speaks with religious authority. In verse 26, we hear that the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The word translated kindness is the Hebrew hesed, which means loving kindness and is covenant language. It is used to describe the quality that binds partners together in intense devotion, each to the well-being of the other. When she speaks, she offers religious instruction of the highest order, loving kindness. There are other echoes of religious language. In verse 17, she is girded with strength, which echoes the psalmist's description in Psalm 93 of God's appearing. The Lord is robed, he is girded with strength. In verse 25, she is clothed with strength and dignity, a phrase that appears in Isaiah's call to redeemed Zion and also in God's challenge to Job. This is how one dresses to meet God with strength and dignity. It is striking that the sages hold up as a model of piety, not a religious professional, but an ordinary citizen whose faith is pervasive and very, very practical. At the same time, we look more deeply at the biblical Hebrew and the translation and the wordplay in this proverb, it can be easy to overlook what the text doesn't say. This is an important task these days, noticing what the text doesn't say. We are so used to people making claims about certain scripture, we just accept it. For instance, we often hear that the Bible says homosexuality is a sin, and the proof is found in the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. When you hear someone offer this interpretation, know that it indicates that the person likes waving a Bible around their head, but does not actually read it. The text says nothing of the kind and actually offers a quite clear explanation. Sodom was destroyed for lack of hospitality. 
which is why so many stories in, the Genesis, in Genesis are about hospitality, hospitality, hospitality. This obviously makes it a much more troublesome text for nationalists, isolationists, and those who are xenophobic. So what does the proverb not say that we read into? The text doesn't say that a wife's worth is derived from her husband's. It doesn't say that she is a derivative being, as much of later Christian tradition will argue, whose identity is a consequence of her husband's or whose status depends on his. Nor is there any claim that her virtue lies in her submission to her husband and his direction. Her virtue and worth are a result of her own agency, her own actions and choices. Just follow the verbs. She seeks, works, brings, considers, rises, buys, provides. She leads her own life rather than following someone else's. It, of course, would be anachronistic to speak of an independent woman, since no one in the ancient world thought in these terms. Nevertheless, there is no hint that her industry is not her own, that she is demure or deferential, or that her pursuits are directed by others. The text says nothing, absolutely nothing, about her physical appearance. There is nothing about her weight, her shape, her clothes, her makeup, or the possibility of a makeover. Nothing about looking younger or wrinkle-free skin. In many ways, this passage offers a radical countercultural message in the profound silence of what we usually hear filled with noise about what a woman should look like. She is praised for the content of her character and the excellence of her endeavors, full stop. Can you imagine if no one had asked what it would be like to watch a female president age in front of our eyes? Or if skirt suits make one more likable than pant suits? The text says You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Roy Waki, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Or Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Children. Mayflower is located she on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. She is. Thank you for listening. The text does not pit the biblical figure against a modern suburban housewife or the career woman. There are no mommy wars in this passage. Instead, the text acknowledges that women don't receive enough public recognition for their work. The last line of the poem is an imperative. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the city gates. If it were happening already, there would be no reason to say it. These days, it's estimated that women do 2.6 times the amount of unpaid care and domestic work that men do, but are not compensated for the work, and national economies generally don't calculate it into a country's gross domestic product. The work is seen as less valuable, if it is seen at all. All women face this challenge, but it is felt most acutely by the working poor, those without access to affordable and reliable childcare, and those who don't work with jobs that have benefits. 
So let me repeat the wisdom we find in our text. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the city gates. A modern translation might be, give her paid family leave. Somewhere, somewhere there's a man out there wondering where all of this leaves him. I will be accused of being rough on men despite the actual content of this sermon. Equality often feels like oppression to the privileged. <laughs> but, but it's not, it's not my experience that most men feel this way. I find that men and women alike are trying to figure out how to embody woman wisdom, the one we find in the text we are all trying very hard to be described as one who, whose hands are open and reach out to the poor, who is unafraid for their friends and family, whose lamp does not go out. The good news is that all we have to do is be intentional and bring a little love. No reason to get testerical. <laughs>